This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. Lectures in History joins students in the classroom to hear lectures on campuses across the country. This week, University of North Carolina at Pembroke professor Jamie Martinez teaches a class about the Confederacy's economic policies during the Civil War. Good afternoon, everyone. How are you all doing? Our topic for today is the second part of our Civil War content for this semester, and I want to talk today about economic policy and social events that are tied to the economy, and I've I've kind of titled this Feeding the Confederacy. We will focus most of our attention on the Confederate states, and we'll talk about the crucial issue of how you make sure that your soldiers and your civilians have enough to eat over the course of the war. There are two key ironies of this Confederate experience for me and, and, and that historians who study the Confederacy really point to. One is that the Confederate States of America is a predominantly agricultural nation, right? And we've talked about this before. The vast majority of the population in the Union and the Confederacy are people who live on farms, but especially in the Confederate States, we're dealing with a population that is overwhelmingly people who live on farms. And yet, they will struggle to feed themselves more often than they will run out of bullets and armaments. So this is surprising when you think of an agricultural nation. The second big irony here is that the foundations of the Confederacy, the founding documents and the secession documents of the states before they joined the Confederacy said, We want a limited government with more power given to the states. And yet the Confederate government is going to become stronger and more invasive than any government people had seen to this point in order to wage war and try to feed everyone. So these two key ironies. We're going to talk about how they come about. A flashpoint for this question of how you feed everyone is a series of riots in the spring of 1863 in the Confederacy, most notably in the key city, uh, in the capital city of Richmond, although it happens elsewhere as well. Spring 1863, timing here is crucial. Uh, We talked last time about the Anaconda Plan and the blockade. We're more than a year into the war, in the, almost two years into the war, really. The blockade is now effective enough that it is getting difficult to find specialty commodities and key foods that cannot be grown locally throughout the South because things are having trouble getting in. Right? So that's one key factor. Another key factor is that it's simply early spring, and the food people stored in the fall and in the early winter as they were getting in their crops They've started to run out of it, but the new things they planted in the spring haven't really come into the ground yet. There's not a lot of things available, food available. So they're kind of, there's always going to be a shortage of food at this particular moment, but it's exasperated by some elements of the war, as we will see in a moment. The Richmond bread riot is primarily enacted by women, women who were working in the factories of Richmond, who were shopkeepers who were small producers, so small-scale farmers who lived on the outskirts of the city. And 
they have a number of concerns. The, the small-scale farmers have found it harder and harder to bring their produce into the city's markets and sell it. The women who are working in the factories and shops can't get the food they need for their families. Their wages aren't keeping up with the cost of commodities as it's getting harder and harder to find things. Most of them, their husbands are in the armies or have, you know, there's a number of widows very prominently involved in this. Their initial plan is to go talk to the governor and see if the governor can help them, right? Because Richmond is the capital of the Confederacy, but it's also the capital of Virginia. So they think, we're going to go to our governor and ask for his help. They get to his house early on the morning of April 2nd, and they find out that he's already left to go to the capital. And so they march further into town, and this people join them. It gets bigger. It gets rowdier. They start breaking into stores and grabbing the food, grabbing clothes, grabbing the goods they are struggling to get a hold of. That was the point of the protest in the first place. Becomes destructive. And they gather, they they meet, they get to the Capitol, and the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, comes out and orders them to disperse. Tells them, he's very dismissive of them, he's contemptuous. He tells them, you know, go home to your families, do what what women are supposed to do. And they say, well, we're trying to feed our families. This is what women are supposed to do. He throws some gold coins at them and tells them they're going to be fired on by the soldiers in the area if they don't leave within five minutes. All in all, this is not good press for the Confederacy. Richmond gets a lot of attention. Um, This is an illustration that comes from a northern newspaper that's mocking the women, where, you know, showing them sending their husbands off to war early on, the southern bells and the beautiful dresses, and after two years of war, this is what they have become. They've become these, uh, you know, sort of unattractive animal-like women in the streets stealing food. Uh, There are riots elsewhere, but Richmond gets the most attention because it's the capital, and also because of the way Jefferson Davis responded, and particularly the soldiers in the Confederate Army are not too thrilled when they hear that their president has suggested firing guns on women in the streets, some of whom might be their wives or their sisters, who are just demanding food. So the, the response from the government will be important. It doesn't look to a lot of people like the Confederate government does anything in response to this, but that's not the case, and we'll see that as we move forward. But I want to go back a little bit to what leads up to this. What causes this particular crisis? What are the factors going on in the Confederacy? Well, on some level, there are deep roots in the agricultural choices made in the 20 years prior to the Civil War. Nobody expected a civil war, so they weren't preparing for that. And we talked about this very effective, um, productive, slaveholding economy that created great wealth. People invested their money and their energy in land and slaves and in the cash crops of cotton primarily, but also to a lesser extent things like rice and sugar. Um, And then in Virginia, where we looked at some of that data, wheat being the the key cash crop. But a lot of the effort that was put into finding ways to get crops to market quickly 
and shared quickly was really focused on cotton and export rather than spreading food around the South. That was less of a priority because that wasn't where the money was to be made. So it was an economically logical decision in the 20 years prior to the war that just ends up being a problem because this war is going on and on and on. Remember we said last time, nobody thought it was going to last more than a couple of months. And here they are two years in, and all of these problems have begun to emerge. Um, we will see fewer problems getting crops to market, or getting, getting food to the people who need it in the United States, in the northern states, the Union states, because... There had been more effort put in the 1840s and 1850s in processing food crops and preparing them for distribution and market. Right? We talked about the stockyards in Chicago being this place uh, and, and the wheat being brought in there and processed in huge quantities and shipped out. So there's a mechanism that already exists for getting pigs to market, slaughtered, turned into edible and distributable meat. There's a process that already exists for doing that with wheat that is very much in place that can be used by the United States Army. The Confederacy doesn't have the similar equivalent for a sort of long-distance distribution of food because it hadn't been necessary before. So they're trying to make up for that, and they make up for it better than anyone was necessarily anticipating, but it's still not a perfect system. When we turn to the events of the war itself... A key thing, and we talked about the progress of the armies last time. Where were they the majority of the time in 1862? They're in Virginia, and they're in Tennessee, and they're in the upper Mississippi River Valley. And these are the places that grew most of the food, and particularly the big wheat farms of the slaveholding states were in these regions that are more heavily invested and have armies trampling through them far more often in the first two years of the war than some of the places that would have been primarily growing things like cotton and sugar. So that's another key factor. I mentioned already the blockade has started to be effective. It's not keeping out everything by 1863, but it's keeping out enough things that that makes a difference in what people can get a hold of and how much it costs. And so wealthy people might still be able to get things, but the people who were involved in these bread riots are really going to struggle to get commodities. Not bread so much, but coffee, uh, things that had to be imported into the Confederacy. Two other key factors really tied to policies set in place by state and national government in 1862, again, to help the Confederacy wage war. First of which is conscription, the draft. And I said this last time, the draft for the Confederacy already began in the spring of 1862. When they're facing that string of defeats in the Mississippi theater, right, in, 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 in what the Tennessee, but the Mississippi River kind of process, and all of those things were leading up to a sense in the spring of 1862 like the Confederacy was really struggling. The draft is part of that. What this does is take more men out of the field, out of the farms, and put them into the armies. It sets in motion a process that by the end of the Civil War will put over 80% of adult and older teenage white men into the armies. 
That's a huge number. So under any circumstances, it's going to be difficult to keep the home front economy going when you're pulling that massive a portion of the population and putting them in the army. So that process is not complete by the spring of 1863, but the draft has existed for almost a year, and it is having an impact. Another thing that's having an impact on labor available is the impressment of free black, enslaved, and American Indian men to do work for the army. We heard about this with the guest lecture we had at the end of last month. These laws start at the state level. So the state of Virginia in the fall of 1862, the state of North Carolina later in the fall of 1862, put laws in place to make it easier to gather and to enforce slaveholders to give up their workers for several months at a time and send them to dig ditches, build fortifications, help build railroads, do all of the labor, the manual labor that the army needs. And that is going to pull more people out of the fields. It starts in October when the harvest is still going on. It's continued into the spring and into uh, March when the spring planting needs to happen. So those factors as well are reducing the number of people who were available to, to grow and maintain and then harvest the crops in many of those food-producing areas of the Confederacy leading up to the bread riots. Another key factor in people's ability to buy food, if you live in a city and you're not growing your own food, how how you're getting it is you're buying it in your local stores or from local producers. The cost of stuff is going up dramatically. What, what things are there are also getting to be more expensive because of inflation. The Confederacy prints massive amounts of paper currency. This gets underway in 1862 as well. By the spring of 1863, things are not looking great. And this graph you have here is going to show you the increase in the cost of gold. So what it takes to buy a dollar worth of gold in Confederate dollar bills. Um, the real jump is a little bit later, right? Is in, in the summer of 1863 and then in 1864. So we're not quite there yet in the spring of 1863 when these bread riots are happening. But it's starting. Prices are going up. Right? Um, I know it's hard to see this, these very tiny dates. But um, this sort of midway point here... Right? That's the start of 1863. So we're seeing things really starting to shoot up in cost, uh, and the value of that Confederate paper currency is going down. The states are even printing their own paper currency. There's just money everywhere, and the more of it there is, the less it's worth, which makes it harder to buy things, particularly for wage earners, the factory workers who are being paid in currency, and their wages are not going up every time the inflation rate goes up. So they're really struggling. So that's another key factor in all of this. To put that inflation rate in more real terms, because not that many people are going around buying gold, uh, there's a clerk in the Confederate War Department named John Jones, who every so often would write in his diary the cost of a barrel of flour. And so I went through and kind of picked some of the dates and the the cost of the barrel of flour. So this is the barrel of flour going up in cost from about 
eighteen dollars, eighteen to twenty dollars at the start in January eighteen sixty one, right before the war begins. To the spring of 1863, it's doubled, right. which is big. That's a huge difference. Right? Compared to where it's going, $500 a barrel by the end of the war, right? 40 doesn't seem so bad right, in comparison. But in two years, the cost of that barrel of flour has doubled, and your wages have nowhere close to doubled. Right? So this is a huge factor in people's experience of the war. I said before right, that... We, we, we've often interpreted the, the Confederate government's response, the national response to all of these economic crises and to this unrest as being insufficient, that they didn't really do anything. Part of why we've seen it that way, why, why historians have seen it that way, and why people at the time living through it thought it happened that way is because of the way they responded, they did things but very often their response was through national policies and approaches that got implemented by local governments. Uh, So they gave local governments tools or expressly told local governments to do things that would help mitigate some of this crisis. So they don't get any credit for having done anything. The county court system, the county commissioners, the home guard, put in place by the state. Other sort of locally available elected officials or or appointed officials are the ones doing these things. And so it doesn't seem like it's the Confederacy, but often there is a national policy behind all of that. Um, So what are some examples of Confederate economic policy? Well, one that everyone knew was the Confederacy, one they didn't like so much, is the tax in kind. Big surprise, people don't want to pay taxes. No one ever wants to pay taxes. We've had that before. They're not paying these taxes. The Confederacy has no national tax in currency or in gold. The tax in kind is a tax in in what it is you produce. So if you are a wheat farmer, it's a portion of your wheat crop. If you raise hogs or cows, it's a portion of your livestock. If you grow cotton, whatever it is you are producing is a portion of your crop. And there's a regularly sort of scheduled announced, 10% is due on this day, the tax collectors are going to be coming through. Um, And they they take your taxes in whatever it is you grow. So if you are already struggling, if you're someone who was on the margins and your farm is just barely enough for you to make it, having to hand over 10 or 15% to the government is a big deal particularly if you were struggling before the war and now your husband is away at the war or you've been injured and you come home and you're trying to keep things going, this tax can be a significant burden for some people. Um, So this is a a policy everyone knows is the Confederate government and no one is happy about. Another policy everyone knows is the Confederate government and most people are not happy about is impressment of stuff. Not just impressment of labor. We talked about slaves and um, free people of color, both African-American and American Indian, being impressed. Uh, But the Confederate government is also impressing food, supplies, wagons, harnesses, horses, mules, cows, whatever it is they need when they come through your community. There's two versions. There's two types of impressment. One is the army is here. 
It's marching through your town. They're going to take what they need. Uh, there's not a lot of notice that they're coming necessarily, and you pretty much have to give them what they're asking for. They'll give you a receipt. The receipt is for Confederate currency, which we've already discussed, is declining in value. So people are often very unhappy about this. Sometimes they fight back. Sometimes they get arrested. Sometimes people are shot for refusing to hand over goods to the Confederate authorities. Um, So that's sort of, it's a legal form of impressment, but it's not predictable. It's kind of hard to know what is going to happen. The other form of impressment is these quotas that each community is expected. On top of your tax in kind, you are expected to hand over another portion of your stuff for impressment. In this case, you get a receipt for reimbursement. Tax in kind, you don't get directly reimbursed. You get a government and an army. Impressment, you get promise of direct reimbursement. Sometimes you get paid. If you live close to Richmond and you can go and demand your payment, you can get it. Sometimes the local impressment agent will come back and bring your payment. And so this is one of these policies that is a national policy. There's state laws and national laws about this, but the work of, of doing it is done by local people. Uh, so I'm, I've been studying this man named William Cabell. He lives in a county in central Virginia, and he was appointed. He was in the Confederate Army, and then he was sent home in what they called detailed to do this work. Right? Uh, he was part of a prominent family. He, had been, uh, he was a teacher at some point in his life. He was well-respected in his community, and this is important. You want someone who is well-respected and seen as honest and that they're going to keep good records of what they have taken. And he spends the whole spring, summer, and fall traveling around his county collecting information from people about what they're growing and what they are producing so that he can come back and collect corn, wheat, meat, things that the army needs to function and either provide payment or provide a receipt. And then he'll collect it every so often on a boat he's bought and take it down to Richmond and hand over to the War Department. And this is happening in counties throughout the Confederacy on a day-to-day basis. So we have this government that is intruding in your production on your farm on a daily basis. Um, We'll see a number of other state policies, and I didn't kind of line them all up here. There's so many of them. But Virginia in particular, because they're in the middle of it all of the time, enact some additional state laws that add to this. For example, in Virginia, um, they put their own spin on the conscription laws. And so the conscription law, which I mentioned but we didn't really talk about, the conscription law for the Confederacy says if you have 20 or more slaves, you get one exemption from conscription. There are a lot of rules put in place on this. Uh, By the end of the Civil War, Confederate conscription covers all white men ages 17 to 55. But if you have 20 or more slaves, you get an exemption. Uh, You're supposed to use the exemption for the the overseer or the owner, the person who maintains the farm, who runs the farm on a day-to-day basis. And the reason for this is you have to keep feeding people. You have to keep the farms going. You can't keep the farms going if there's no one making the slaves work. 
So the conscription policy is designed to make sure there is someone on the ground making sure the slaves are doing the work and growing the food that the army needs to eat. Um, what we'll see is the states putting their own spins on these conscription laws and saying, if you don't grow a food crop as your primary crop, wheat, corn, you raise pigs, you raise cattle, whatever it is, if you are not growing food as your primary crop, you don't get the exemption because we need more food, we don't need more cotton in the last year of the war. You can't eat cotton. Um, Virginia actually reduces it and says if you have 15 or more slaves, you get the exemption. But again, you have to be growing food crops. Tobacco is out. We'll see communities detail farmers. So someone who is a big producer of crop who doesn't have enough slaves, the community will work with the Confederacy and and the person will will be requested to be detailed and sent home. So he's enlisted in the Confederate Army, he goes through training, and then he is sent home and told his job for the Army, for the time being, is to grow food. And if needed, he'll be called up to fight, but he is probably more valuable growing the food. So there's all of these kind of tweaks on the policy of getting, and that's why we'll see the the numbers say 90-plus percent of of the white men in this community were enlisted in the Confederate Army. That doesn't mean they were all in the Army all the time. Some of them have been sent home because they're farmers or they're blacksmiths or they're doing jobs at home that are more necessary for the Army the majority of the time than their service as soldiers. But they can be called up if absolutely necessary at the last minute. So these are some examples of the way they're trying to resolve this economic problem. By getting more people on the farms growing the food so that people can keep eating. It's also examples of the way the Confederate government is sort of inserting itself into the day-to-day life of every community across the South. We'll see the War Department very directly take control of the big sort of movers of, of, of the stuff, the railroads, Not every line, but over time, what we'll see is that the majority of the railroads that are still operational, that are not in United States territory by the end of the war, are primarily controlled by the Confederate government. So that moving soldiers takes priority. Moving moving war material takes priority. But there's also an interest in making sure that food gets distributed where it needs to go to keep the population going. Because if the soldiers are constantly getting letters from their wives saying, we're going to starve to death if you don't come home, eventually you have a desertion problem. So you need to feed the army, but you also need to make sure the civilians have enough to eat. And that's going to be a constant priority and concern for the War Department. Salt is a surprisingly important factor in the Confederate war experience, because it's the only way to preserve meat for long periods of time before refrigeration. You kill a chicken, you eat the chicken that afternoon, no big deal. You kill a a pig, and that's hundreds of pounds of meat. You need to figure out a way to preserve it for the long run. And the primary um, Confederate ration is cornmeal and salted pork. So the army needs salt, 
to take all of those hogs they have collected and preserve that meat for the soldiers. But the people also need salt in order to preserve their own food. There's a salt mine, a massive salt mine in western Virginia, near, not surprisingly, the town of Saltville. And a huge amount of army resources are put into this place in western Virginia that for the most part is not near any of the battles. But it is heavily fortified, and they're constantly sending slaves out there to build better fortifications. And they're building rail lines that connect Saltville to the rest of the Confederacy because you can't preserve the food if you don't have salt. And then each state is put in charge of handing out salt rations to the people. And this, again, goes to the county level. The county governments are told, you know, you have a pound of salt per person or five pounds of salt per person. It varies depending on the season and how much might need to be preserved. That you've been allotted, send someone from your county to pick up your salt and then make sure it gets distributed. So this is another sort of industry that's being nationalized and that the process of distribution then is being handed back to local governments to make sure it happens. And I've read through the correspondence of the governor of Virginia. There are months where literally half the letters he gets are about salt. Um, We will also see price controls put in place by the Confederate Congress. And a big debate over what is an appropriate price for commodities because in, in Richmond, the prices have gone up much faster than in other places in the country that are more remote from the conflict. Right? Um, so what is a fair price is a big uh, subject of debate. But when they put those prices in place, they are prices for government purchasing. This is how much the Confederate Army will pay for these products, whether it's cornmeal or wheat or pork, or whatever. Here is the Confederate government's purchasing price. You might be able to charge ordinary civilians more, but this is what the government will pay. Um, This is a problem for big producers because they are not making as much money as they could without those controls in place. But it ends up being helpful for small farmers and their wives who were struggling economically because... The Confederacy tells county governments that they can also purchase at these official government prices and distribute the food to the wives and widows of soldiers who need it. So again, it's an example of this national policy enabling local governments to meet the needs of the people. It doesn't look like the Confederate government is doing anything because it's your local government that's giving you food but they're only able to do that because of a Confederate government policy that was put in place. Are there any questions so far? We have about 20 minutes left, and I wanted to switch gears, even though I said at the beginning this is about the Confederate economy. I wanted to switch gears and talk about uh, the United States and some of its policies, because... First of all, it's the only day we're going to have to talk about it. But I also wanted to provide some comparison points. What we're going to see happen is that the Republicans in Congress in the United States are able to take a little bit of control. In the aftermath of the election of 1860, they did not have a majority. But as as 11 states left the United States, 
Democrats left and the Republicans um, became the majority in Congress. And what they're going to enact looks an awful lot like what the Whig Party wanted in terms of that American system economic plan that was put in place or that, that the Whigs wanted to put in place in the 1840s and never managed to. Some Whigs have migrated to the Republican Party and they're going to end up getting a lot of what they wanted because those things help the United States wage war. For example, a national bank. Keep hearing about a bank, it keeps coming back and going away. Andrew Jackson killed the second bank. The third bank is created as a way to help the U.S. government sort of better gather up the supplies of the countryside, to have one functional national currency. Um, And in addition to a bank, we're not just dealing with banknotes anymore. They legislate the creation of legitimate paper money. Through something called the Legal Tender Act, and this is important, Those U.S. dollars printed during the Civil War specifically say this bill is legal tender for all debts, public and private. The Confederate money is not legal tender. They print it, or at least not officially in this way. They print it, the government prints it and authorized it, but it doesn't have that same statement about being legal tender, which means someone can say, I refuse to accept this, I do not consider this to be money. The U.S. money says this is money and everyone has to accept it as such. The other thing they do that helps keep inflation under control is they enact a national tax. We get an income tax in the United States. The Supreme Court rules it unconstitutional during the war, so it doesn't outlive the war. But it helps balance the money that's going out through that paper currency being printed by having some money coming back in. So that inflation in the United States over the course of the Civil War ends up being about 75%, which is a lot. That means something you buy costs seven times what it was before the war. But we're not going into the 500, 800 times that they're going in the Confederacy. And Confederate inflation is hitting... 9,000% officially by the end of the war. So the United States plan works a lot better than the Confederate plan at keeping the economy going. We're also going to see that U.S. Congress has time to do other things besides wage war. And so that's also where some of this sort of old Whig policy comes up. We get a Homestead Act that makes plans for settling the West in a more sort of official form than had been happening, and and specifically in giving small family farm-sized plots of land, 60 acres. If you go out west and you can, over the course of five years, improve your farm, clear some of the land, plant a crop, build some sort of dwelling structure, doesn't have to be much, then you get to keep that 60 acres for free. This doesn't work if you are indigent. Right? You have to have at least enough money to get out west, to get supplies, to put a crop in the ground, right? but you don't have to buy the land. Right? So this is a way for people 
in that free labor ideology we talked about to use their own resources to move up and for the government to help them just a little bit, to become independent landowners in the West. This was very popular in the northern states prior to the war, but the slaveholding states had blocked it because they didn't want lots of little farms all over the West that was going to prevent the spread of big plantations. We also see the Republican Congress pass the Land-Grant College Act, which creates, uh, well, which gives the states a way to fund the creation of universities, of normal schools for teacher training, but of, of state colleges and universities that will really focus on agriculture and engineering. Um, so a lot of the public universities of the Midwest in particular are funded through the creation of this land-grant college system. Land-grant meaning that each state is given land out in the West, in, in, a, in a territory that they can sell right, to land speculators, to developers, to the railroad companies, and then use the money to fund their school systems. Right? So Congress isn't giving them money outright, but they're giving them a way to get the money they need to do these things. And we also see Congress pass the Pacific Railroad Act that allows for the creation of the Transcontinental Railroad. And again, we talked about this in the 1850s being something that everyone wanted, but there being this big debate over where it was going to go and was its, its primary route going to end in a slaveholding area or in a non-slaveholding area? Well, again, once most of the slaveholding states left, that debate was easier to settle in Congress. So we see the Republicans in Congress in the United States also right, creating this much more economically active government that had existed before the war. And in many ways, it is the war that gives them the space to do this. Um, no one would have signed on, much as the Whigs and the Repub some of the Republicans wanted it, would have been very hard to get the National Bank Act and the Legal Tender Act and the income tax through Congress if the war hadn't made it necessary. And the Confederate government had that same experience. They just had it to a much greater level because they had to put all of their energy and resources into waging war, right? and to becoming that very economically active government that had its hands in everything in order to feed the population, to feed the armies, to keep things going. Right? The fact that it worked for as long as it did right? ha says a lot about how um, effective those systems were. So that while Robert E. Lee's army is having their successes in Virginia, right? and we talked about them heading into Pennsylvania, in the summer of 63 to give the Virginia farmers some space to grow those crops that were then going to be collected on their behalf a little bit later. Right? Um, all of those battles we talked about being at places of transportation, the railroads and the rivers, right, is because there was all of this food to gather and send and there was a mechanism behind the scenes for doing that that involved you know, people all over the place in the Confederacy. Right? Um, so that's what I have for you for today. Any questions? Okay, I do want to uh, take attendance as we are finishing up. So hang out. Don't go anywhere, but you can begin to pack up your things. I just want to make sure I got everyone as you were coming in.
But thanks so much. I guess we're going to finish early. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.